This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, May 28, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Federal regulators have adopted a new regulation under the Community Reinvestment Act. The CRA was supposed to address disparities in mortgage lending among racial categories. Cato's Diego Zuluaga, whose research informed some proposed changes to CRA regulations, discusses what good policy ended up in that final rule. So the, the CRA is a statute from 1977 a very different time in which there continued to be a lot of credit discrimination and there were there was decline, particularly in urban communities across America, and there was a great deal of concern that despite the Civil Rights Act and other anti-discrimination measures, that banks wouldn't lend in primarily low-income and minority communities. And in the context of urban decline, that things would only get worse. And so the CRA was passed in a bid to encourage banks to serve people of all incomes and people of all groups within the communities near their branches. And there have been implementing regulations over time that have changed. And the last time they changed was in 1995. That's a long time ago. It's before the rise of the internet. It's before a lot of consolidation happened in banking across America. So changes in those regulations were long overdue. And when the controller of the currency that was named when the Trump administration came into office, uh, Joe Audie, when he came into office, he um, made it a priority to reform the CRA. So this is a two-year-long effort. And in my research, I have found that it is indeed necessary to make a lot of changes to CRA regulations because the context in which they operate has completely changed, not only in terms of digital banking and consolidation, which I mentioned, but also because as we've had more and more people move into urban communities now, gentrification has been very rapid. And I found, for example, that in D.C., two-thirds of CRA lending, lending that gets points for banks under the CRA, actually goes to high-income people moving to low-income areas. If you look at New York, it's around 50%. You look at L.A., it's anywhere between 30 and 40%, depending on the year you look. So a lot of the lending isn't going to the communities that the law intended to help. Uh, and so that, that, that's another impetus, I think, for, for reforming the regulation. Okay, so uh, when you uh, advised the OCC about what this final rule should look like, what generally was your advice? My main piece of advice was that in addition to trying to make the criteria by which OCC examiners look at banks for their lending, making those more objective and more transparent so that banks could know in advance what counted and what didn't count, that they also stop counting these high-income loans because that's the single greatest thing one can do in terms of boosting lower income lending in communities. That is safe and sound, of course. You know, This is not about increasing lending just for the sake of increasing it to people who are not able to repay their loans, but sustainable lending. But let's not fool ourselves by thinking that the CRA is working marvelously simply because a lot of the lending is going to higher income people in low income areas. So that was a big recommendation of mine. So, and I don't mean to jump around here, but when you talk about how the the marketplace has changed, mortgage rates have come way down since the late 70s, there is a a vast increase in uh, non-traditional lending institutions that uh, have been extending credit to uh, relatively low-income borrowers. And as you mentioned, gentrification is uh, an issue. Um, So what's the best way to uh, prevent these high-income people from taking advantage of a program that's aimed at low-income people? And uh, what did the OCC do in its final rule? Sure. It's a little bit complicated to 
see how the CRA interacts with a lot of those things because the CRA is a statute that merely requires examiners to check whether banks are serving all of the people in their communities. So the statute is very vague. The regulations are very lengthy, but they're also vague. They don't quantify. They don't um, mandate that banks make a certain proportion of their lending to low-income communities or to any particular group of people, which I think is a good idea not to mandate that, right? Because you don't want regulators in the business of credit allocation. However, what that means is that a lot of these impacts are indirect in their tangential. So the impact I found on gentrification, I don't think is any particular policy of the banks to favor high-income people. It's the fact that they have to juggle lending in all communities with lending profitably and lending in a safe and sound manner and so on. My point, more than anything, is that it, regulators, if they're telling us that um, low-income communities are being served in these places, using the numbers that the regulations now bring up, that that point is not validated by that because a lot of the lending isn't going to low-income people. And so I think that the, the final rule that was issued uh, earlier this week excludes high-income loans, which I, which I think is a good thing, uh, even though in the original proposed rule by the OCC, uh, they would have not counted altogether, whereas now there is another measure that brings them back in. And so that gentrification impact isn't entirely removed. All right. So uh, is, is this on net an improvement in your view? It is on net an improvement, but I think it's a rather small one. And given that we can expect another generation to pass until the next set of changes to the regulations happen, I think it's probably a missed opportunity because the banking market and, and indeed lending for small businesses and, and mortgages, which are the two main lines of credit that the CRA looks at, uh, has become much more competitive and contested not only by banks, but also credit unions and fintech lenders and other finance companies that are not subject to the CRA. And so not looking at those changes in a more structural way and incorporating them and, 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 fight, and frankly also wondering whether the CRA is fit for purpose as a statute at all, uh, I think is a bit of a missed opportunity. The other thing I would say is that only the OCC, which is one of three bank regulators, will apply this rule. The OCC is the most important. It covers two-thirds of bank assets, but it leaves the Fed and the FDIC out. And that kind of inconsistency is never good when you're talking about a national banking market like we have in America. So to what extent does this rule make it uh, more clear for banks in advance that the lending they are doing is uh, compliant and effectively targeted at uh, low income but solid borrowers? The OCC, I think, has focused a lot on giving illustrations and examples of things that count to financial institutions, which I think is good. On the other hand, the regulations remain very verbose. Uh, there aren't very many numbers. Originally, the OCC wanted to give ratios, performance ratios that banks could use to try and assess their performance. But even those presented a lot of problems because ratios inevitably involve some measure of regulatory allocation of credit, which in the past has gone very badly in terms of directing where credit should go. And obviously, the economic cycle can change quickly, as we've seen in recent weeks. And then circumstances and, and, and the situation that people find themselves in can completely change. So it's generally not a good idea. The, 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 the problem of the CRA is that at its core, it is something that leaves regulators with a tremendous amount of discretion. That's never going to change unless the statute changes. And in the context of having a lot of pressure by different interest groups to get credit to different places, 
and big um, demographic trends happening in cities and in rural areas and so on, it's very difficult to avoid that kind of subjectivity. So uh, more broadly here, let's talk about the mortgage market, if if you don't mind. How has that changed since this uh, pandemic began? Well, a lot of people found themselves quickly in, in economic trouble, in dire straits. But the CARES Act mandate, which was the first piece of legislative relief um, when the pandemic started to have economic ramifications, mandated that everyone be able to apply for forbearance from their mortgage servicer. Which which allows them to not make certain payments? Which allows them for up to 12 months, starting with six months, but up to 12 months, without showing any evidence of distress, just, just asserting distress, to get relief on payments for that period of time from their servicer. From a borrower perspective, that's very good because it can alleviate a cash flow emergency. But the open-ended nature of the program and the fact that servicers still have to advance payments to the people who ultimately own the loans, whether they be banks or investors, means that there can be problems further down the housing finance pipeline. And some people were really worried at the outset that this would cause something like a $100 billion cash flow bottleneck with um, certain parts of the housing market, particularly the more vulnerable ones that are government guaranteed. It turns out that even though a lot of people have applied for forbearance, only about half in April actually missed their payments. And the rate of increase in people applying for this has been much lower than people expected. So to give you a sense, when I was doing my own estimates of how much of a, of a problem this would present, I was counting in 30% of loans guaranteed by Fannie and Freddie and up to 70% of Federal Housing Administration loans, which are lower credit score, riskier, and therefore, you know, by people who are in, in, in a worse position to confront an economic emergency like this. The actual numbers right now are somewhere like 13% for FHA and 9%, sorry, 7, 7 and something percent for GSEs. So much lower than my expectations. Who, who knows where those will go, but the trend is clear that this is, this is less than we expected. Now, to what extent, uh, when uh, people apply for a forbearance, what is due at the end of that forbearance? Is it all of the money that they uh, otherwise would have been paying in monthly increments? As ever with these hastily drafted statutes, it wasn't specified what that meant. So it's been up to the the individual regulators to through a mix of guidance and nudging and, and pushing the, the regulated institutions to actually make it so that payments will be attached at the end of the loan unless the borrower decides otherwise. Of course, we are, you know, this makes it sound like regulators are doing the good thing and the people who own the mortgages and the banks and so on are the bad guys here. I think a lot of the banks and the services were going to give relief anyway, and it, it was indeed already happening at the outset. Uh, but in addition to that, someone always loses. You know, these mortgages are guaranteed by people and owned by people, and, and those have to take the losses. And of course, everyone accepts that these are exceptional circumstances. But, the, you know, the, the, there is no situation in which everyone's a winner. And that's something perhaps that something sometimes is missed in the narrative. To the extent that you're a member of a community group and you care about things like the character of a neighborhood, you care about uh, making sure that uh, homeowners or renters in low-income neighborhoods that are under threat of some sort of gentrification, what are their interests and how do they react to the rule that uh, was put forth? 
So community groups, as a rule, were very antagonistic to the effort of changing CRA regulations. I think part of that had to do with the fact that the controller is a former banker who, when he sold his bank in California in uh, the late 2000s, uh, sorry, when he sold his bank in California in the early 2010s, had some uh, conflict with community groups who alleged that the bank hadn't done enough for low-income borrowers. Without taking a view on that accusation, uh, I don't think that their opposition reflects the character of what the OCC wanted to propose. I think, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the changes would have actually reduced the impact that gentrification has on the adverse impact that gentrification may have on, on, on lower income borrowers. Uh, but in addition to that, I should say that community groups are in a slightly awkward position here because yes, on one hand, they take their community's interests at heart. And I think a lot of them do believe in the CRA, but they're also beneficiaries from the existing status quo to the extent that some of the CRA funding that counts for banks is direct funding to community groups that they are able to then allocate. So they have an economic interest in preserving that kind of um, financial power and financial wherewithal. And in addition to that, currently, because the regulations are relatively subjective about performance, when it comes to making decisions that relate to the CRA, community groups can advise. They can say whether a bank is doing well or badly. And that gives them a lot of leverage, again, with financial institutions. And I think that's something that anyone in that position would want to preserve. And these regulations, by making the criteria more objective, would probably have taken some of that away. So it's worth keeping that in mind when we look at where people position themselves. Diego Zuluaga is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast. <laughs>